All righty. First thing, a little. Um, uh, next week, uh, I will will not have a class. We're going to skip next week. I'm going to be in Texas, so there will be no class. We'll, have, we'll return to class on the 29th, which is the week. Okay. Off. okay? All right. So. Where, where are you going? How come you don't have no class? You guys going out on a date? Yes, we're going on a long date. I'm leaving for Texas on Sunday for our oh, Okay. Our daughter oh. and uh, her family, husband and okay. Boys. We'll miss you for one time, but we'll, we'll, we'll go back to normal next year. I'll be back. Board going. All right, we are in Romans, uh, and we finished last week chapter four, and we finished on. The differences in chapter four that are noted, the differences that justification makes, and there were two, four, five that we that we identified. And anybody remember any of them? The differences that justification makes. No, from the chapter four. Well, I remember there is nobody righteous, not even one person. Oh, okay. um, one of my Christian friends at work. Okay, he's just saying hi and he's punching out. Our... Okay. And it's through God's grace that we are saved, right? Right. We're talking about you know you're saved and then you're you know before you weren't saved. Uh, yet now you're saved and you have a good standing before God. But what are the differences that we talked about from chapter four? Anybody? God's promises are true for you. Okay. Uh, complete assurance. Well, I put it as complete assurance relies on God's power, not our performance. That's in yeah. verse 16 of that chapter. Um in sort of a corollary to that, hope, we have hope when hope is gone because God's promises aren't enough. All right. Since all have sinned, as um, Annette had said, there is no, we have no reason to boast for, of our own uh, accomplishments. We also have no need to be afraid and cower because we have deep security and we also have great identity. Okay, so we have no boasting, no cowering, no, uh, we have a great identity, complete assurance, and hope when hope is gone. So those are the uh, differences uh, after salvation that we have. Uh, now we're going to turn to chapter five, and I've read several commentators on chapter five, and one of them put it, probably it's, uh, McLaren, a long time ago, said he thinks McLaren was a great expositor, uh, taught in several seminaries. And he said he thinks that when Peter, in 1 Peter, uh, talks about Paul's writings as being somewhat confusing and difficult to understand, that he was actually writing about this chapter, hmm. chapter 5 of Romans, because it is a rather convoluted, even for Paul, convoluted, difficult chapter to understand. 
And we will try, we're not going to get down into the weeds on it because we would lose our minds and we'd be here for the next six months. But what we're going to try to do is just give you an idea, a beginnings of understanding and an outline that when you go back to it, and I hope you do, that you'll be able to um, um, understand it a little bit more and to dig deep into, into it. So, okay, Romans 5. I'll read the first 12 verses. Therefore, John Aloisio is one of John Aloisio's favorite words. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we will also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, there's a, there's a textbook worth of, of theology in this paragraph, which you can read over very quickly and not quite think this is a lot in here, uh, but there is a great deal. Um, so in verse 1, what we, you know, we have been justified by faith. What do we get? Just from verse one. Peace. Okay. Okay. Peace. Okay. Now, what is peace? Um, satisfied with just knowing God and, and having him, um, the main focus of whatever we do, <laughs> we okay. gain you know, peace. Uh, I think the uh, satisfaction calmness is part of peace. Anybody else? Joy? That we have made right with God through the faith. Okay. Right? Yeah, I mean, that's part of the peace. Yeah, that's part of peace. Anything else? I mean, what does peace imply? If, if, if two countries make peace, what, is, what, is, what does it imply? Lack of uh, conflict. If two countries make peace, well, you don't make peace when you're, you know, with, you know, we don't make peace with Canada, you know, this week. We make peace with people we are at war with. So mm -hmm. part of that part, I mean, the calmness and the uh, um, and satisfaction or contentment is the word I like to use as part of peace of, of the uh, Hebrew concept of hesed is a, a contentment. But it's also a lack of hostility is also part of it sort of folded into it. And if we're at, who are we at war with? 
If we are at peace, who are we at war with? If we are Satan. With enemies. Sorry? With, evil with the enemy, with evil forces. Okay. So when we're justified and saved, we are, we make peace with the evil forces? No. No? Okay. So who do we make we peace make with? We make peace with God. Right. We make, we make peace with God. Or, you know, if before your salvation, anyone who is not saved is at war with God. Yeah. Okay. Is at war with God. Um, and that's an important concept that, that unsaved people are not only condemned, but they're actually at war with God. And uh, sin breaks the, you know, sin is breaking the law, but there's another part to sin that um, is, is, is sort of is missing from that statement that, you know, you break the law, but do you, you know, is there any other part of sin that is just, is it just breaking the law or is it something more? Well, you're disconnected from God. Right. Um, that's, that's true. It's your intent. What do you mean by that, Steve? You intend to defy God. Okay, you intend to defy God. Okay. Yes. That's what you, and you're deliberately doing that. You're deliberately doing it. Anybody want to just nah, focus that down yeah. a little bit? That's all right, but let's focus it down into a nice little statement. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Sin breaks the law, and what else? It, you know, it, you intend to, you're doing it deliberately. What is that, you know? What a, a relationship broken? Broke, well, you know, you can't break a relationship you don't have. No so, remorse. Before you're saved, you have no relationship, so you can't break the relationship. Right. Okay. No remorse. No remorse. No remorse. Okay. Why don't, don't you have remorse? You have no consciousness of your sin. No consciousness of your sin. Okay. Okay. But you're doing what comes naturally to you. Okay. You're naturally, uh, your nature is a sinner. You, so you, you don't really think you're doing anything against your nature. So you do what comes naturally. Okay. Well, let's, let's put it this way. Um, before you're saved, you, you break the law through sin. But, and almost Perfect. importantly, is that you assume you have the right to. Hmm. Is that being presumptuous? Yeah, presumption. You assume you have the right to break the law. That the law means nothing, you can break it no matter what. You go willy-nilly and do whatever you want. All right? It's deliberate. It's, it's intentional. And it is, you think you're doing right. You don't think you're doing wrong because you're thinking, I don't, I'm above the law or, you know, uh, it doesn't pertain to me. Uh, everybody else is doing it. All that stuff, it means that we have, we have this assumption that we can break the law. Okay. Now, after salvation, that changes. But before salvation, you're at war with God and, uh, and quite honestly, God has a promise, has a problem with us uh, because of this assumption. That is the basic problem with Adam and Eve. I mean, they assume they had the right to disobey God. They assume that they could make decisions of right and wrong for themselves. Uh, you know, that they could mm. do whatever they pleased and not have any consequence to it. So that's the kind of, uh, of thing we're having here. And 
when we talk about God's wrath on sinners, it's not vindictive. I mean, it's not like I'm going to get you because you did this. It's legal. It's a legal uh, condemnation. You have broken the law. The law has, has to be uh, kept. God is just. Therefore, you must be punished for it. That's, that's a legal concept. It has nothing to do with I'm going to get you. I'm going to get even with you. None of that. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, now, anybody have Bible in front of them? Yeah. I hope so. Uh, turn to Isaiah 53, 5. You know, Pete, it's like when you're driving and it says go 50 miles an hour. And yes. you're doing 55, but it's only 55 and everybody else is doing 60, so I'm okay. Exactly. Or, the, or that little suggestion of the red sign that says stop. It's really a suggestion. You know, it's right. not really a law. You know, I'm just going to plow through. Okay. 53, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Okay. The key section of that is that by his wounds, that it brought peace. So in other words, Jesus's punishment brought peace, all right? Christ is punished for our sins, and it brings us peace. So that's what we're talking about here. This peace we have with God comes from justification, and justification is through the cross. So the cross, meaning all that happened on the cross and all that Jesus went through on the cross, brings us this peace with God. Now, it is a so peace. That, yes, ma'am. So is that peace a form of security? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is, it is this okay. calm satisfaction, security. And you know, he'll talk about it, what happens when we have troubles and all that. And that's part of it. This is a security. Uh, it, there's a whole bunch of things that occur because of salvation. And, and peace with God is the first thing that Paul uh, brings up here. All right, verse two, first half of verse two, it says what? Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into his grace. Now, anybody remember the book of Esther? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when, she, when Mordecai comes to her, Esther, and says, you gotta go to the king and tell him about this situation. Or what she was, you know, what she was saying and what she was worried about. Hmm. She was afraid he would kill her. Exactly. Uh -oh. Why? Why, Peter? Uh, because it was because um, it was a big presumption, even mm -hmm. for the wife of the king, to step in front of him and uh, address him without being addressed first. Right. Hmm. Right. In ancient times, and we still, you know, remember Esther. You know, is a is a few hundred. It's a few hundred years uh, before Paul, but it hadn't changed. Getting in front of the king or any sort of ruler is by invitation only. You don't just step up and say, "Oh, Your Majesty, I need to," you know, like the reporters in front of uh, the president, uh, Mr. President. Uh, you know, no, you don't do that. All right, and that would be a uh, that would be punishable by death. But what has happened in salvation is now we can go before the king. We have this access. 
uh, through God's gracious gift, his grace, we have access to God himself. So that's the second thing. First is access. Um, all right. Third, now we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's verse 2B. We hope in the glory of God. What in the world does that mean? Um, it means that you hope that God forgives you for not doing what you're supposed to do and you know better. Okay. Um, I'm, com I'm completely a really young Christian, so I'm sorry if I come off into I just uh, respond to that's a pretty just listening. Someone who wrote something 2,000 years ago. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll go back to my quiet corner. That's why I never talk most of the time. But I really enjoyed the Bible says. I just think it's very advanced for me. But I'm going to be quiet in this. But well, then you know what? It's not you know. Then it's to listen and and try to get as much and see if you can apply it when you read the scripture again. And the idea of Bible study of any Bible study is to incite you to read. And you know, like in um, the Bereans, when Paul said something, they went home and started you know looking at it themselves, making sure that what he said was correct. And I'm hoping that you are incited to do the same thing, to think about it and to pray about it and to read it again and again until you realize what's going on here. Um, so this hope of in the glory of God, the underlying Greek words here actually mean conviction, meaning that we are sure of God's glory. We are sure that we will share in that glory. We are sure that we can stand before that glory without any sort of problem, that he's not going to smash us or kill us because we have a uh, deem to come to him. So that hope is all this certainty that we have in that in that ability to come before God, to be able to do what we uh, to ask him things, to listen to him, to talk with him, to have a personal relationship with him. So Pete, when the word hope that is used here, it's not the way we think of the word hope. Like if I say I hope I win the lottery, for example, that means mm -hmm. it's like something I doubt is going to happen, but I'm wishing that it will. Whereas this hope is not a pipe dream; it's something that's that we can we know is coming, and we it's something we're looking forward to. Right. In in the scripture in, in, in the New Testament, the words for hope, trust, and faith are extremely closely intertwined, and it's very difficult sometimes to even tease it out. And a lot of times they're all the same word and they're just translated differently because the context requires it. But they all have this sense of, of faith, of trust, of, of knowing something, of, of sheer, of, of um, uh, what's the word? Um, conviction that things will happen. In other words, we don't hope that if I drop, if I jump off a building, I'm going to go up, okay, instead of down. Uh, you 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 hope in something that is real and and um, and, uh, and is going to happen as conviction. Uh, the problem we have is that we as Western, actually you know, anyone in modern Western, we think in in a certain way of logic, which is called uh, linear logic, and that's the way the Greeks thought. You know, A to B to C to D to F. In 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 um, in Semitic or Hebrew, the logic is totally different. It's not that linear. It's blocks. 
And sometimes we get into trouble when we don't realize that these are blocks of logic. They can sometimes be contradictory. They look contradictory if you look at them at the, as a Greek thinking, but if they're, you look at them in Hebrew thinking, they're not contradictory. Uh, I mean, for instance, you know, um, there is the idea that there is a predestination where, you know, people are elected, but yet God wants everybody to be saved. And those seemingly contradictions, a, a, a Jew would not see that as a contradiction. They would say, well, one of them is looking at God's view, and that's a whole block of logic of pre-election. And then the other one is looking at it from our view, that whole block of everyone is saved. So, you know, those two, and they, they see these paradoxes, but not as paradoxes, but as intertwined uh, blocks of logic that show things from different viewpoints. Um, for instance, again, another for instance, if you read in, in Genesis, who, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God. God, well, okay. Anyone else? Another answer to that? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. In Exodus, it says, in Exodus, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and it also says God hardened his heart. Those are actually two blocks of logic where God, you're looking at it from God's point of view, and you're looking at it from man's point of view. And they are sort of juxtaposed, and no Jew would have a problem looking at that and realizing that those are two logical blocks that just are, are looking at different things from a different angle. So you have to understand that. They don't, the scripture is not written by people who think the way we do, who demand that you know, certain things, A has to follow, B has to follow C. It is much more of a, um, it's almost like the difference between men and women. You know, Men are much more linear. Women tend to, to jump around in their logic. And that's, those are complementary things. And, but they're different, okay? And it's, thank God, they're all different. Uh, so you know, we have to understand that, that they, their thinking, their worldview is different. Uh, too many times Christians try to impose our own thinking and our own worldview on something that's 2,000 years old or more. Okay. okay. Now, here's a note that we rejoice in hope. All right. That's, you know, we rejoice in this hope that we have this relationship with God. Um, and it's, it's something to rejoice in hope. Um, one of the things that, you know, it comes through in this whole chapter um, and shows up again and again, and we have to sort of sort it out because it's kind of a, a hard thing sometimes when Paul's talking about salvation. There are actually three tenses that are used in salvation. There is a past tense, we are freed from sin. There's a present tense, which is this relationship, relationship we have with God, that's present. And then there is this future, which is the presence of God. So you'd have to know that we will have, we are saved. We are in a, a relationship with God, being uh, sanctified, if you and is the term that is used. And we will be in the presence of God in His glory. And we rejoice in all three in the present tense. So these all these three tenses are crushed into this one word that we use: salvation. We are saved. So again, it doesn't come across in English. It does come across a little bit better in Greek. And it certainly comes across when you're thinking in a, in a, in a Hebrew sort of way. Um, all right. Verse 
3. Where are we? Verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Okay? In our suffering. It is not noticed, and this is something that was missed by the church very early on from about the 4th century through the, through the present time to some sense, that we are not rejoicing for our suffering. We are rejoicing in our suffering. I have some thoughts about that. What's that? I had some thoughts about that. Okay. You want to share? Yeah. The, the, the suffering... Man is built in the image of God. Mm -hmm. So when you say you as a human being are suffering, especially even as a Christian, you are suffering the fact that others are not believing. It's the, the suffering from the faith that is not around you. You wow. suffer for another person. No other animal can suffer that way. Only a human being and a Christian can suffer when a person doesn't believe or does not follow. That's the kind of suffering that... Uh, uh, that, that God would, 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 would suffer, you know, I think that's different than any other suffering. Okay. And you can only have it if you are a Christian. Okay, well, okay, but what is the difference between those two prepositions, in and for, right? Suffer, you know, we rejoice in our suffering versus yes. we rejoice for our suffering. Well, in our suffering is something we feel, and we know that we are with God when we feel that. Suffering for someone else is, is, is so external. That's as far as I can get that. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. That's good. Now, in from the fourth century, especially in the Middle Ages, yeah. people would rejoice in something, not in, but for suffering. Right. They would deliberately do suffering. They would deliberately prolong fast. They would deliberately wear hair shirts, sackcloth and ashes live on top of a 60-foot pole for 30 years. Those kinds of things were done as part of their faith. They were, they were, they were, had hope and person, they had hope in, excuse me, they had hope for their sufferings. They had rejoicing for their suffering. That because God was giving them suffering, they were in a special place. Yes, they were getting sanctified by that suffering. Right, that the suffering itself was doing something to them uh, that was good. We're not saying that, and Paul is not saying that. He's, he's not saying that suffering is good for, you know, is good yeah. of itself. He's saying that when we rejoice because of our, in our suffering, in our suffering, through our suffering, then we are close to God. That when we have suffering, we can rejoice in it because we know we're in God's hands. We know we're in God's plan, and we know that there's a reason for all this, okay? But we don't rejoice saying, God has given us suffering, so it makes me a better person. And no, that's not what this is talking about. Okay. All right. Now, um, it says, it produces endurance. Some of you um, will have, in, uh, uh, produces perseverance. Um, very related words. Uh, probably a better translation would be um, single-mindedness, mm. all right? When you're in now, you know, anyone who's had a prolonged period where they were suffering, 
for whatever reason, psychological, physical, whatever. You focus. Now you can either focus on the suffering itself, you can focus on why you're, you know, why you're suffering, or you can focus on God in your suffering and know that you have hope and joy in that suffering because you're focused on God. And that's what Paul is saying. In your suffering, focus on God. Focus on the person who can get you through this. Focus on the person who will stand by you and give you strength in all this suffering. Okay? It's, it's giving this, it's, it's, it's this psychological thing that if you're, listen, if you smash your toe, there's nothing else you think about except your toe and it hurts like mad. And it focuses you on certain things. What he's just, what Paul's just saying is focus on God. Focus on hope. Focus on the glory of God. That will get you through this. Okay? You don't say, oh, thank God I, I broke my toe. No, you focus on God to get you through the pain and through the suffering. Yes. Okay, uh, Pete, here's my here's my uh, simplistic analysis again. You know, we're running the, we're running this marathon, you know, and, and Christ is the finish line. And and as we're running it, you know, our, our feet are blistering, you know, we're we're suffering in pain, but we're you know excited about finishing this race because of what we have to look forward to. So that's well, that's just the way I kind of See the joy in, in the suffering, if you will. Yeah. And to stay Someone, determined to finish. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I <laughs> determined that. to finish. That's, I think, the important. That's a very important. Yeah, that's good. I think it was fine for me. You said it all right. Good, Abby. Linda didn't hear that. Linda, that's because there's a big stake at the end of the finish line. That's what it was. Yep. Sal agrees totally. <laughs> John. And endurance, and this is verse four, endurance produces character. Um, <coughs> character there, I, I, you know, I, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a correct translation. It's not an incorrect translation. Uh, a more difficult to, for us to hear translation because it just doesn't sound right is that it produces testedness. Hmm. Okay. It really, the, the term really has more to do with testedness uh, or the, the basic part of it uh, as you go back what that word meant before and in through Greek literature. It's testedness, meaning that when you go through suffering and you, and you glory in God and you hope in God and you give him glory in your suffering and rely upon God, you have been tested to show others and to show yourself that you are with God, that you are close to God, that God is real to you. So it, it, this suffering produces this result that you've been tested and passed. Right? It's like suffering through advanced calculus in high school or college, and you test and you, you, get, you, know, you pass the course. Well, you have been tested, okay? And you have shown that you have done the work that you need to do to pass this course. <coughs> it's testedness. You have shown yourself, you've shown the character of God, and you, you've shown also yourself that you can trust in God and rely on God. And that builds your character up. He delivers. Yeah, he delivers, right. Uh, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
once you've been tested, you know that, hey, God got me through this mess. He'll get me through the next one and the next one and the next one. And as these things build up, your hope and your, and your sense of confidence and peace with God builds. Right? It builds one on top of another. It's not like, you know, you're going from, you know, you're not, you know, next, the next problem that comes along, you're not starting at zero. You're starting at this level of hope and confidence and joy and peace so that you can move upward, not downward. Okay? So it's, not an over, it's not an overnight thing, though. Oh, no. Absolutely no. not. Yeah. It's it's a matter of um it's a matter of knowing God uh somewhat more than you knew before, so that you could trust him to believe in that. Or as one fairly wise person once said, you know, in his prayer said, Lord, you got me into this mess, you're gonna get me out. Yes, but you have that faith that he will. <laughs> he will. And your faith is, again, is not something that starts immediately. No. You know, we always talk about babes in Christ and all this, because the faith, meaning that you trust in God to do things, builds because yes. you get through something, you see what's done, and you know, hey, he got me through this, then he can get me through that. And you go up again, you go up a notch, and up a notch, and up a notch, and up a notch. You know, you'll have a fallback, but generally the idea is to go up a notch. Each time. Yeah. It didn't it take Paul four years before he started his journeys, did it? At least. Yeah. At least. Right. Now, verse five. And hope does not put us to shame because God love, love, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Okay. Um. Doubt comes, all right? Doubt comes. There's no, there's no, um, there's no, uh, there's no doubt about it. Doubt will come. You know, God, can you get me through this? But the idea is that this hope that we have, that he's done in the past, that he's shown us in the past, continues, that God's promises are continuous. Hey, he answered us. He, he, he came through on our promises before. He'll do it again. That's this hope that brings us along, even in our doubt. Now, there's nothing wrong with doubt, all right? But doubt that seeks real answers and doubt that is satisfied with the answers God gives us is, is, is fine. Uh, it's when we say, I don't, I don't believe because I'm doubting, I'm doubting, I'm doubting, and I don't think he can do it again. It's when you say, I doubt it. I have these doubts, but, you know... I'm thinking about it. I'm praying about it. And you know what? He's done this in the past. He'll do it again. Okay. Um, so you know, there's nothing wrong with, with doubt because that's the way people are. We learn through questions. We learn through doubts. And we learn to develop a better understanding the more we think about things. Um, okay, now... He's going to, he starts talking about why all this um, is happening. He says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's verse six. Verse six. God died, Christ died for the ungodly. And he has this whole thing, you know, like, sure, people will die for good people. 
sometimes, you know, not often, but, you know, once in a while, you'll die for a good people. But most people don't want to die for anyone. But here is Christ who comes and dies for us when we are at war with him, when we're enemies, when we're sinners, when we're basically saying we can do it on our own. We don't, we have the right to sin. And he comes and dies for us. So that is the beginning of this sort of argument that he starts about, um, you know, if, if about our hope and our, and our trust and our belief, because if we think about that, okay, we think about that. Think about this, that when we were enemies of God, he died for us. Yeah. When we were enemies of God, he went through all this suffering for us. When we were enemies of God, he came down from heaven, put aside his glory, became a man to walk among us, to have the same problems any man has, and then goes to the cross for us. Okay, he did that when we were enemies. Now that we are essentially friends, because we have a right of access, we have all this privilege, see what happens. Because now suddenly, if you're willing to die for an enemy, how much more, and this, this is another rhetorical thing, how much more? If you're going to die for an enemy, how much more for a friend? If you're willing to die for someone who basically has spit in your face all his life, you're willing to do that, how much more for a good friend? How much more for someone you love? How much more for someone who is part of you? So, and it has this, mutual, this bond of relational love that, with, that we have with Christ. So that's the, the gist of this argument that, you know, this is our hope. This is our hope. He suffered and died for us. He's going to get us through this because he did this when we weren't even thinking about him. Now that we think about him, guess what? He's got to be really good to us. He's got to get us through this mess. He's got to give us the power to live the life he has told us to do. Um, so, and, you know, you know, it's salvation achieved, uh, was achieved when, in point of verse 10. Point of verse 10. When his son died. When his son died. Now, here's that second, even more. Thank you, Peter. But even more. He saved us and reconciled us to him while by dying. What is he now? Alive. Alive. So there's a thing. He died, but now he's alive. So now, you know, death is, you know, the ultimate passivity. He's dead. But that death saved us. Now he's active and alive. So how much more, again, that rhetorical thing, how much more he's going to work for us? How much more is he going to do for us? Because he's now alive. Beautiful truth. It's incredible, right? <laughs> yeah. An incredible truth, okay? Beautiful. And the question always becomes, how is this joy, uh, um, how, do we, how do we show that joy? How do we do it? Uh, and verse 11, more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we now have received reconciliation. Mm. Uh, it's living out all this. It's living out, knowing and living out our relationship. By the way, what's reconciliation? Reconciliation. 
when you recon re when you reconcile something, <laughs> you make it better. So you have come back to uh, you have yeah. come back to the cross. You have come back to Jesus through only because of His grace. Um, so I don't want to use the same word as reconcile, but we have now become part of Him. We are now uh, justified. <laughs> um, we're back to peace again. Yeah, back to peace again. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, say a good friend of yours steals from you. Okay. And you forgive him. Okay. You say, you know, I forgive you. What happens to your friendship? Broken for that time being. Broken and may never be brought back. Reconciliation is not, is beyond forgiveness. I forgive you for stealing this money from me. And I now want to be your friend again. Okay. So reconciliation is bringing you back, bringing the person who's a sinner back into relationship. Uh -huh. A full relationship, okay? So it is bringing you back into that relationship. So reconciliation, you know, we see this sometimes, uh, several times where in, in, in ministries, especially where someone falls. Now, forgiveness is one thing, but bringing back and bringing that person back into ministry by reconciling him with all the things that have happened is a very difficult task. God does that instantly with us. As soon as we are saved, he has looked at this person who has been at war with him, saying, I can do my way. I don't need you. I, I assume I can make my own rules. I can do all this stuff. And taking him and bringing him into hope and glory. But, you know, this is this, that's what reconciliation is about. And he tells us to be reconciled not only with him, but with each other. And we're not only supposed to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also to be reconciled with them, to bring them back into the fellowship, bring them back into a relationship with us as well as God. Okay. So we have that um, onus upon us to do that. It's difficult and sometimes almost impossible, but it is something that God has done with us and we should do with others. Um, if someone is rejoicing, um, all right, now see, how is joy achieved? And it, the whole gist of, I think, this, this chapter um, is that we, we, we achieve this joy uh, knowing about and living out and thinking about this doctrine uh, that we have been presenting, that we are justified by faith, that God has justified us. If we really think about it, we really meditate on it, which is what Paul is doing in this paragraph, is meditating on, on the justification by faith and saying, well, what happened? What does it do? What happens to us? We're reconciled to God. We're brought into his presence. We have this hope. We have this Lord. Thinking about that, praying about it, 
And understanding it gives us this joy. It should give us this joy. And the more we think about it, the more the joy should be. Because after all, God has brought us from one state into another state. And how he has done it is incredible. And where our position now is, is just absolutely incredible. So all this fits into how we, how we achieve this joy. How do we get it? By understanding in our heart and mind that what, what he has done and where our position is now and what has happened to us. Because without that, we have, you know, we might, you know, you're not joyous. You may be happy here and there, but you're not joyous. But to have the joy that God talks about is to have this um, sense of what he did and what our position is and where we are in this, in this world and in, this, and in the future. I'm thinking that I'm thinking of something that's a little bit off, but I think it's a little relative, but our hope is in Christ. And of course, if we have led, a, a, you know, if he has, um, you know, he forgives us for, for our sins because we are, we are his forever. I'm thinking of how horrible it must be for the unbeliever to then suffer the consequences of being separated from him. That would be the greatest separation as was his with his father when he left heaven. And, you know, uh, again, I think it was hmm, even Spurgeon, I'm not 100% sure, said, you know, God is very gracious. He gives you exactly what you want. Hmm. If you want to be separate from him and you want to be completely off, that's fine. And that's what hell is, separation. Exactly. Separation. Okay. Yes. All right. So just to, to think, what are the, you know, the signs that we are rejoicing? Okay. One is, this, this, again, looking at this doctrine, you should be deeply satisfied, you should be rejoicing it um, in this doctrine of justification, right? You should be saying, wow, this is, this is the, the, the ultimate thing. This is, you know, ice cream a la mode. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, it's just the best thing that could ever happen. You should be deeply satisfied with it and, and rejoice in it. Think of your past in terms of your justification, what you were before you were saved, what you are now. Um, if, you, if you find a character flaw in yourself, um, many of the church fathers and, well, especially the Puritans, would sit down and think every, every day with part of their devotional, what have I done that isn't Christian? What have I done that isn't right? And that should, and in their cases, was meant to draw you closer gone yeah. or you know i i do this uh you know i always steal from the office but you know what you have forgiven that i'm going to with your help i'll change and then bring that brings you in a closer relationship with me. um serenity and death because after all what is death death is transition point and it is not you know <clears throat> I've, I've said it many times people sort of scratch their head saying I'm not afraid of death. I am afraid of dying, but I'm not afraid of death. Yeah. And the process is, is miserable, and I don't want him to go near there. But death itself is a transition because, as Paul says, on one side of death, you're here, away from Christ, physically. And on the other side of death, you're with Christ, physically. And he, sometimes, and he says, I'm not sure which way I want to go. Mm. You know, I know I should be here doing this, that, and the other thing, but boy, I'd really rather be in the presence of Christ and God. You know? So there, this, this 
Death is a transition point that should not be feared. Dying, that's okay. You can fear that. It's, you know, the process can be painful, the process can be difficult. But death itself is a transition. It's peace. And, you know, when someone criticizes you for something you did, you know, what is, what is it normal? What is your reaction? Angry. Anger. Angry. Defend yourself. Defend yourself. Anybody else? I don't want to even talk about it. Your thought, and if you're really rejoicing, you should think, not to him, not to that person, but to yourself. Man, you should have seen me before I was saved. Because my reaction would be totally different. My thinking would be totally different. Even my actions might have been totally different. All right? So, you know, you should have seen me before. You know, God has made changes in me. Yeah, I slip and fall, but God has made changes. All right. Now, we are going, it's 824. We'll probably stop right there. But what I want to do for now is for two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. The 29th is the next lesson. I want you to read 15 to 25. Chapter 5, 15 to 25. Chapter 5, 15 through 25. And you have a secretary. Yeah. I want you to <laughs> also echo. compare it to 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Oh, wow. Chapter 5, 15 to 25. And there is to 1 Corinthians 15, 45. 15, single verse? Yes. And in this, I want you to go through several things. I want you to see in these, what, 10 verses, 11 verses, six contrasts and four kings. Six on four what? Kings. Kings. K-I-N-G. Identify. Yeah, identify six contrasts and four kings. Okay, this is a lot of homework, and I just got off my part of my elevator. Can someone text me all the homework? Yeah, I will. I'll do it. I will, Abby. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks, dude. You're awesome. I appreciate it. I, I haven't even got down yet. My feet are hurting. I gotta get home. Now, again, there is not going to be any uh, class two weeks. Joy, you had something I, I, I heard a little bit. Yeah, first Corinthians, first Corinthians 15, what verse? 45. 15, 1, 5, verse 45. Okay. Yeah, I'll send this out from the office so everybody else be reminded. Anybody want uh, what do you say? Questions, problems, difficulties? Lynn, do you do you have a crush on the teacher? I'm just curious if you have a crush. Uh, on yes, I must admit I, I do. <laughs> and she's only two years younger than me, so it's not anything weird. Sarah, you're on. You're on uh, mute. 
I saw your lips moving. Could be. Does the Bible also explain how to respond to critical people? Well, is that a loaded question? I mean, you know, I'm not sure how to answer that. <laughs> I, I just, uh, that's another study. That's another study, you know, and, and for, for the nice purposes, my cousin uh, uh, Stanislaus, who is a 10-foot pole, wouldn't touch it either. Okay, anything else? Thank you. Okay. All right. Uh, Terry, would you end, end us in prayer? Yeah. That, that gentle with that's long, so I will let John pray. No, no, you, know, you pray. Go ahead, pray. pray. Oh, Let's pray. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Father God, we thank you for tonight's study, oh God, that you enlighten our minds, Lord, how uh, the dissect each verses, Father God of Romans 5. Thank you so much, Father God. And help us, Lord, not to be just hearers of your word, but doers of it, Father God. So, Lord, tonight we thank you for the people who came today, for my brothers and sisters in the world who came tonight, Lord, to attend this class. <laughs> May you continue to guide us and uh, lead us, Lord, and give us the wisdom and knowledge and understanding to understand your word and to seek you in every day of our lives, Father God, and to know you more deeper and to have a deeper relationship with you, Father God. And these words that we study tonight, Lord, will resonate in our hearts that we will, be become, will become more evident in our lives, Lord Jesus. So thank you, Lord, for our teachers of your word, Father God, tonight. Bless him and protect him and guide him every step of the way, because you delight in his steps, Lord, is what your word says. Thank you, Father God, for you are a God who knows everything and sees it all, and you know a God who knows no limits. We praise you and we thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Amen. we will see you, hopefully, most of you, all of you on Saturday. Yes.